0: As I begin, I would like to read Jesus' prayer from John 17. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Beginning in verse uh, 20 of John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, Even as you loved me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these are wonderful truths, these cosmically glorious purposes that you had and coming to make the peoples of the world one in you. We seek this in so many other ways and yet you have already done it. You have already accomplished this unity that we seek for, this peace that we long for with each other. Oh, Father, I pray that you would cause your shalom to rest and to come to pass more in our church, and I pray that you would proclaim your peace to our divided and suffering world today through this church. So please now work in your word. Cause your word to dwell richly within us, please. By your spirit, cause your word to be clear to us today and cause it to do a great work, a work that we cannot even begin to ask to think of, and yet you still promise to do it. So will you please do that today? Will you do that for the glory of your name and our joy in you, we pray, amen. Well, as we said earlier, today we celebrate Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was named this because it was a feast, a Jewish feast, prescribed in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 to 21, Leviticus 23, 15 to 21, if you want to look that up later. And it was to be celebrated seven weeks and one day, or carry the one 50 days after the celebration of Passover. Um, Therefore, this feast was known in the Leviticus has the Feast of Weeks, and the word Pentecost is just the Greek word for this day. And Jesus was crucified, of course, on the Passover. He was our, is our Passover lamb, the fulfillment of the first Passover on the night of the Exodus, sacrificed for us, his legs not broken, so the angel of God's judgment might pass over all who believe in him. Thus, we celebrate the Passover. We will today. We will celebrate the Passover every time we celebrate communion. We proclaim the death of the Passover lamb until he comes. Well, that's what happened on that Passover. And then Jesus ascended to heaven, Acts 1, verse 9. And then finally, Luke records in Acts 2, finally the day of Pentecost arrives. And there's two basic parts to Luke's narrative here, verses 1 through 4, are the miraculous events that occurred there. And then verses 5 to 12 record the response of the people. The the word arrived here in verse 1 carries the sense of a moment of great significance. Something cosmically significant is finally here. Luke has only used this word one other time in Luke 9.51, when he described how the fulfillment of the time had finally come and Jesus finally set his face like flint to Jerusalem. A moment of cosmic significance, and it's come. So, we come to this moment, we come to this moment, and it uh, it is of cosmic significance. It was then, and it is now to us today. It is so important what we are about to look at today because we in our culture we are we are so proud. We're so proud of the, of the to- the tower of tolerant unity that we have built for ourselves and yet as we will see today like the tower of babel God looks down on our little tower that we've built for ourselves this tower of t- tolerance and unity that that wobbles and is ready to fall down. He looks down on it. He looks down on all of our divisions, and enmities with each other, all of our divisions, and he asks us, how's that working out for you (laughs) in your culture? May I show you another way, a better way, to find what you're after? And the day of Pentecost shows us that way. It shows us that way. So first, this morning, I'm going to walk us through this passage in Acts 2, and then we'll look at a few principles from the passages from the Old Testament that this passage is drawing upon And then we'll apply it to ourselves. So first the passage. The disciples, not just the 12 apostles, but probably 120 disciples of Jesus are all gathered together waiting. Jesus told them to wait for him and that's exactly what they're doing. They're waiting when, verse two, waiting in this house in Jerusalem on on the day of Pentecost when there came from heaven a sound like a violent storm wind. A violent sound. There was no wind. There was no rushing wind but there was a sound of a rushing wind which is no coincidence the Hebrew word for spirit is the same as wind this is this is the sound of the spirit coming in the sound of a violent wind and it fills the whole house and then verse 3 tongues of fire came down Luke records that they were divided which seems best to understand that not the tongues themselves were divided, like like a serpent's tongue, but that they all came down at once, and then then they divided and landed on each individual person present. And they were tongues. Why why tongues? Verse 4, Because the Spirit was filling these people to speak, to speak in other tongues, other human languages. However, the Spirit miraculously gave them utterance. So that's what happened. <laughs> that's it. We'll, we'll come back and look at a few details here in a moment, but that's what happened. Now the response, verse 5. Because it was the Passover and Pentecost, Jerusalem was jam-packed with Jews and converts to Judaism from all over the known world. Jam-packed. And they're drawn around the house, verse 6, by the sound, the sound perhaps by the sound of the wind, but but more so by the sound of their own language being loudly spoken. They were bewildered, and verse 7, amazed and astonished, astonished. If you've been following us in Luke, you've heard that word time and time again. This is the word that Luke always uses for people's response, people's base response to Jesus, when Jesus does something awesome. And it's the same thing here. Jesus is the one doing something awesome here. Jesus promised that he would pour out his spirit upon his people, and that's exactly what he has done. Um, Don't ever forget this, that the book of Acts is about Jesus. The book of Acts is just the continuing acts of Jesus through his spirit in his church, but it's all about Jesus. So they're bewildered, and verse 7, they are astonished, astonished at the work of Jesus here. Um, and, and and what's what is most amazing here is that um, the, the, these metropolitan travelers from all over the world marvel because it's just a bunch of country bumpkins from Galilee. <laughs> you know, speaking speaking not only their language, but, verse eight, speaking in their particular dialect of their language, speaking in the particular dialect of their particular village, of their particular region, of their particular country, country bumpkins from Galilee, talking this way. What? What? So, yeah, m- modern, modern terms, these were backwoods hillbillies from southern Illinois in the middle of a crowded New York City, speaking in languages and dialects that they had no business knowing. That's what's happening. So the real miracle here is not just that a farmer from Illinois was speaking Parthian. The real miracle is that he was speaking in the particular dialect of the village that the Parthian was from. So then the crowd looks around and they look around at each other and they realize that what's happening to them is happening to the guy next to them too. But they're all hearing the same thing going on, and they and they all realize that wait 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 a second, this is happening to all. This, I, I'm not. Am I crazy? No, I'm not. Because you're experiencing the very same thing. All of us from all around the known world, this is happening here. Verses nine through eleven, which I, I set up Isaac to to do this very difficult reading today, but. Um, uh, total setup. But uh, verses 9 through 11, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes and even Cretans and Arabians. (laughs) The entire known world representatives are, are represented here, and they're all hearing their languages and their particular dialects spoken. Just a couple observations from this list here. One is, it's it's very likely that the church in Rome that Paul writes to in the book of Romans was born from this moment, from these visitors from Rome, who went back and formed the church there. Um, We should also note that if, if you know anything about history, you know that all the nations represented here fought each other tooth and nail in bloody wars throughout all of human history. They hated each other, some of them for good reason. Uh, for instance, Paul, later in Titus 2, would refer to the Cretans as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> and, but even then, he was only quoting one of their poets, <laughs> talking about themselves. Um, The the high and the low of the world are all represented here. The first world, the second world, and the third world, they're all here drawn together by amazement and perplexity in what they're hearing. What they're hearing is one thing, verse 11, the mighty works of God. God. That's why God is going to all this trouble. Not that they would just be amazed, but that, that by, by being amazed, they would hear the mighty works of God spoken in their own language. So as miraculous as this moment was, this, the supernatural event was insufficient by itself. The, super fit, the, the supernatural event was meant to lead to one question, verse 12. What does all this mean? What does all this mean? The same goes for communion. This is why we have the children come back in for communion every Sunday, is that we want them to sit with us and to see us go through this strange ceremony and then to ask us, mommy, daddy, what does that mean? That's weird. Exactly. That's why it's weird, to make you ask. Let's talk about it, Johnny. Same, same principle. Well, others mock the whole scene, verse 13, saying, oh, these people are just drunk to which Paul would stand and answer them, the people who were asking, what does this mean? And the mockers to answer them all with the first sermon of the new church age. Jesus pours out his spirit and the disciples speak. And this draws a crowd with questions and mockers. And then all of this God did so that Peter could speak the words of life. That was God's end game here, such that at the end of the sermon, the people would no longer say, what does this mean? But what shall we do to be saved? And Peter will say, as we will see at the end, believe and repent, repent and believe and you'll be saved. Well, that's the passage. So, we need to ask ourselves, what's actually happening here? To ask in another way, like, why go to all this trouble, God? Like, what? couldn't you just say, hey, everybody okay, church, now time to go out, preach the gospel. Go on, get, preach. You know, you got a job to do, chop, chop. But he doesn't. He doesn't because they and we need more than that. We want more than that. God is a God who satisfies us in every way. We need more than to be given a job. We need something more deep something more transcendent that satisfies our souls. And we see this from the two Old Testament stories that Pentecost strongly echoes here. From these stories, we can see that God is uniting his people together here at Pentecost under his good lordship. God is uniting the nations together the nations who previously hated and fought and killed and tortured and despised and wanted to wipe each other off of the face of the earth. He unites them here. He cuts through all that animosity like a hot knife through warm butter by his power to bring his people under his good lordship. That's how he does it. Which is precisely what we need and what the rest of the world needs. Okay, where do I get this from? From the Old Testament well this this word unity i get from the fact that at pentecost god is clearly undoing what he did at the tower of babel in genesis 11 genesis 11 the the problem the problem with the people in that story is not that they had immense ambition to build this great tower immense ingenuity that was not the problem the problem was not that they were united together to build this great big tower. The problem was that they were building this ambitious tower to attain to the heavens and gain all of the blessings of heaven without the God of heaven. That was their problem. They were doing it, Genesis eleven four to make a name for themselves, to be as blessed as God is without God. Now, this is a fundamental sin, the de-godding of God. God, you leave, but leave all the stuff. <laughs> That's, that's the fundamental sin. And so God said, essentially, in Genesis 11, okay, let's see how this works for you. Have it your way. I'll really withdraw. I'll let you see what it really is like to really be without me. And so he cursed the people such that they began to speak in different languages and could not understand one another. They began to speak in different languages for the very first time. Up until this point, all the people of the earth had one languages, which was a residual effect from the beginning when all the people of the earth had one God. But at Babel, God gave them what they wanted, and suddenly they were not united at all. They were divided. They could not understand each other, and they scattered. And we've been divided and scattered ever since. Mankind was never meant to be united around anything other than God and the scope of human history teaches us, if it teaches us anything, it teaches us that we cannot, as much as we would want to. We cannot. We've been trying ever since Babel, and we're no closer to this unity than we were then. We prefer our rebellion against God and the futility of trying to unite together without God instead of, instead of bowing the knee to God and enjoying one another in God. But God, being magnanimous, being rich in mercy, gave us his son, our Passover lamb, so that all of our rebellion might fall upon him instead of us. But at the same time, so that God might be just in dealing with our rebellion. And God raised him from the dead, making him the firstborn of a new race. A new race of people raised from the dead. Just as Moses went through his own exodus, Jesus goes through his own exodus, bringing his disciples with him. Well, this is the first piece here. God in Christ is undoing the curse of Babel and uniting the people back together. He's unwinding that curse and bringing all of the nations back together. Pentecost is God unwinding the curse and uniting the peoples of all the world. Not by giving them the same language, but by miraculously giving them all the same joy and the same object of the same joy. Christ the mighty works of God in him. You, you echo, you, you feel the, the echo of Pentecost every time you meet a Christian who's from a compl- a, a, another nation or culture that's completely foreign to you, but you find out you're a Christian, and five minutes later, it's like, wait a second, I'm like closer to you after five minutes than I am to like half my family. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, that, that's Pentecost. That's the unwinding of the curse. By the Spirit of God, giving us the same joy, the same object of our joy in the face of Christ. God cuts through all of our animosities, all of our divisions, everything, every malice that we would ever hold, every pride between peoples. He cuts through it all like a hot knife through warm butter in the power of Christ. So here are these 120 people. And they're new friends from all around the world. And they're about to be sent out from this house to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, proclaiming this God. Which brings us to the second Old Testament passage. God is affirming here, God is doing here, God is affirming here on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, what he once did at Mount Sinai, beginning in Exodus 19. Again, the, this is no coincidence Uh, Mount Sinai came 50 days after Israel was saved from Egypt. Israel came to Mount Sinai to enter into a covenant with God. They needed to become a people, a nation, before they could enter into the Promised Land. So God is cutting a covenant there with them at the base of Mount Sinai. And you may remember, Moses records that the mountain there was covered in a violent storm, just like at Pentecost. No coincidence. And Moses went up the mountain and then came down again carrying the stone tablets of the law, the terms of the covenant. And it was then that uh, it was as if Moses was coming down and Moses was the pastor officiating a wedding, a wedding between God and his people, Israel. And the stone tablets again were the terms of the wedding covenant. And now here at Pentecost Jesus has gone up to the throne room of God to the right hand of the Father and he has now come down again by his spirit and now God is reaffirming his marriage covenant with their pe- with his people his people who have been so faithless to the covenant and yet here is God exercising awesome sovereign grace to his people to bring them back to himself though they have wandered so much. So in that sense God is doing something new here and yet, God is not doing anything new at all. Not new as if he is creating a brand new nation, a brand new something. But the church is not new. There's always been just just one olive tree, just one people of God. But it is new in the fullness of the thing that he has been working on all along, that the fullness of this thing has finally come. The, the, the marriage that God has always wanted with his people is now here. It has now been at least born so people from all the nations are being drawn to God here in Jerusalem, united with each other in his Son as if in a one flesh union, filled with ecstasy in his excellencies, not drunk, but filled with the Spirit in joy together. If you hear sexual undertones there, that's intentional on God's part. Biblical human sexuality Is not an end in and of itself. It points to cosmic realities. That's for another sermon. (laughs) Well, the result is a new household, one characterized by new traits. We we read about them uh, in Isaiah, as we read at the beginning of our service, in his prophecy there, God's household is now, this new household, this one that is old but also new, is filled with all that God is for us in Christ. And therefore, that this new people, this new union of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation is characterized by Isaiah 32 justice. In Isaiah 32, verse 16, the people are justified. God's people are now justified not by what they do, not by the color of their skin, not even by the content of their character, but by the content of Jesus' character given for them in their place. Jesus not only died for us, but he lived a perfect life for us. And now God's people are uh, justified in him. And out of this justification, we then live increasingly lives of righteousness. Out of our justification, we live righteously with each other. And out of that righteous life with each other, this, Isaiah says, the effect of this is, Isaiah 32, 17, peace peace and quietness and trust forever. The very thing that all the nations are looking for all the time. God has accomplished it in his people, in his church. At least he's given birth to it. At Pentecost, God is giving birth to a household made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation who were previously filled with envy and hatred and malice for each other, now dwelling in justice and righteousness and peace with each other under his marvelous lordship. God defeats all of our ethnic and racial pride and malice by supernaturally making himself the joy of all the nations. Let me say that again. God defeats all of our ethnic and racial pride and malice by supernaturally making himself the joy of all the peoples of the earth. That's where this is going. We, I, we sang that, that earlier, didn't we? That God will be the joy of all the earth. Didn't we sing that just a minute ago? That's true. That's where God is taking this, and that, that trajectory began at Pentecost. Thus, the, the glory of the triune God and the joy of his people means the unity of the world. The joy of, this, of, this, uh, of God's people, the joy of, of his people rejoicing in him and him getting glory, this is the way the world gets united around Christ. And again, God began his project for this worldwide cosmic unity at Pentecost. So this is what's happening at Pentecost. This is what's being given birth here. Not just a church, not not just a people on on a mission, but a new race of people, a new race of people that are united across every boundary in Christ. All right, well, let's bring this down from cosmic principles to ask, okay, what should we do about this today? What should we do about this today? Because after all, we live in California. We live in California A state with a commendable, I will say, a commendable, easygoing tolerance one for another. Okay, I I don't know if there's any other state or maybe any other place on the face of the earth that possesses this easygoing tolerance one for another. When it comes to unity and diversity, California is maybe the best the world has to offer. The best. The best. Uh, never mind how this state has treated Chinese people over the years, never mind the Japanese internment camps, never mind the number of black people killed in the womb or on our streets, especially the last two years, never mind how California schools teach that just being white itself is a sin and that white children should hate their race, never mind how in order to cure racism our elites call for more racism, Never mind how in order to cure racial hierarchies, our elites are calling for people to exist in racial hierarchies. Never mind how Asians today are fearful of their safety. Never mind how intolerant California's universities have become in the name of tolerance. Never mind that if you ask for a definition of racism, you are called for a racist even for asking the question. Here in California, I've had that experience. Never mind that California elites essentially see their culture as being held hostage by, quote, white extremists. Never mind that that, that the issue of race is used as a weapon against people to divide people all over the place. Never mind that gun ownership in California, especially here in Sacramento, is soaring in our supposed vaunted tolerance of each other. We are so diverse, so tolerant, and yet justice is draining away, and so is righteousness, and so is peace. California is the best this world has to offer in terms of unity and diversity. (laughs) And that's bad news. (laughs) That's bad news. That's not good news for anyone. So what are we to do about this? What are we to do? Well, if we have learned anything from the Bible, we should expect... We should expect that our steps, whenever we apply the Bible, that our steps should always go along the lines of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance and then proclaiming Christ as king. So how does that play out here? Well, first, our faith, Christian, your faith, when, when, when you see racism being fought with racism, when you see, when you hear that you are... Um, are excluded, or you are called racist, what are you to do? Are we to fight fire with fire? Are we to use the devil's tools? Never. Never. What we are to do, however, is to exercise faith. Exercise faith. And the first place we need to exercise faith is to believe in the church. To believe in the church. Let me explain what I mean by this. The first Christians when they were inducted into the church, were made to affirm several truths, and one of them is, I believe in the Catholic Church, little c, Catholic, as in universal, universal. And they said that they believe in it because, why? Well, you can't always see it. This, this beautiful thing that Pentecost gave birth to, do you see that today? I mean, we're, here we are, we're, we're just us. <laughs> Is this, a, is this a sea of, of every tongue, tribe, and nation here in our room? No, hardly. Hardly. So we're meant to, we must, we must believe, and the first step of our belief must be to believe in the church and what is already true for us in the heavenly places, and then see see the church according to those heavenly realities, that we are, we are already united together, we Christians, because of Pentecost. We are united. This is the truly remarkable thing about the church. Every other entity on the face of the earth must get unified and stay unified. Every other entity must do it that way. But the church is the only entity on the face of the earth that is unified already in the heavenly places. So we do, not, we do not say, let's get unified. No, Christians believe in the unity of the church among all the church across the world. We believe in this, and then God calls us to be who you are. Be who you are already. Live out who you are. Live out your new identity as being united together in Christ. Believe in what happened at Pentecost what God did in your life and that other brother and sister's life. It is, it is walking by faith that the church is the only indivisible thing on the face of the earth. Everything else is divisible. This is why in the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, I've actually, it's, some time ago, stopped saying the part about one nation under God, indivisible. I stopped saying the word indivisible. Why? Well, of course our nation's divisible. Of course it is. The church is the only thing, because of Pentecost, because Jesus is risen from the dead. Did you, do you realize this? The church is the only indivisible thing on the face of the earth. So you, 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 you cannot, you could, you, the only time you could divide the church is if you could put Jesus back in the grave. <laughs> But we must believe this. We must walk by faith in this image of who we actually are in the heavenly places right now. And, and when, you, when you walk with that image, when you can see that brother there or that sister there who's you know, irritating you because you know, you're from Southern California and they're from Redding and people from Redding are so irritating... Oh my goodness, you cannot believe how irritating, you know, or vice versa. People from Southern California, they just think they're the bee's knees and ugh, ugh. You know, when you, when you have these little moments, let alone across racial lines, let alone across ethnic lines, when you have these little moments, Christian, God calls you to walk by faith in that moment, though you don't feel united, you already are because of the day of Pentecost. You already are. And God calls you and I to walk by faith in that and then to act who we are, to, to be who we already are, to relate to that brother and sister as if we are already united, which we are, which we are. We must walk by faith. Again, every other group tries to be united and fails. We already are united, and we must simply live out who we are. This is, you can look this up, this is a central theme in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that we've been united together, chapter 2, and the very first to do, the very first to do that Paul gives in the letter to the Ephesians is this very same thing, to live out who you are, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, united together in one. We cannot always see this unity, so we are to walk by faith in it. So when you are accused of wrongdoing, when brothers and sisters act against this unity, you don't take that at face value. There's a sense in which you don't believe the sins of other people. (laughs) You don't ignore them, but you don't believe that that's the reality, the, the deep reality of things. What you believe first is what God tells you in his word about the church and about your brothers and sisters, that we are right now united together in the heavenly places already seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father, together. When there are disagreements, we don't assume the worst of each other. We don't assume any enemy positions and go to war. We assume we are united, and we work for solutions together in the unity that we believe is true by faith in the heavenly places. And we do this because the church, we do this inside the church, We do it inside the church in all these little moments because the church is God's solution to every other rift and divide in the world. There is no other solution. There is no plan B. There is no plan B. Do you, do you understand that? There is no neutral middle where, where things get magically solved in the world, where the nations come together and, and are united, where black and white people come together and are finally united in perfect peace that will only happen around Christ. We must, we must live that out inside here because the church is meant to serve as a picture window to the world of what this unity looks like. So when you're having a modest disagreement, a low grade, you know, grade C disagreement about your ministry or this or that, realize that it goes far beyond that little moment. It goes far beyond that. The world is looking in. The world is meant to look in and see and look and see What does that mean? What's wrong with you people? What do you mean what's wrong with us? You just, you're like family. What's wrong with you? You shouldn't be that way. It's not normal. No, it's not. Let me tell you why. Okay, so the the heart of all of this, the, the, the heart of the solution to every racial and ethnic divide, is you and I walking by faith? Do you realize that? Do you realize that? Every time you read a story about, oh, this, you know, Abraham Kennedy, what, what, what do you say next? And what, what did this race huckster say? And what, 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 what did this person say in response? And oh, boy, he, he really got owned on. It. All of that needs to be telling us be the church, how much the world needs the church because this only gets solved around the throne of Christ. So, if that is true, if that is true, then, brother and sister, we must first repent. We go first. Christians always go first to repentance. We must repent of our unbelief, of the church, of, of taking this, whatever this is at the moment, at face value, And we must also repent of trying to achieve a unity in diversity by lesser and destructive means. In other words, without God. Without God. Um, We must repent. We must repent because unity without God, it, it always ends in tyranny. (laughs) Unity without God always ends in somebody saying, oh, we're so tolerant except when we're not. (laughs) Whoever's in charge gets to define that. So we're so tolerant except when the mob is not and then we're not. Tyranny. And we must repent we must repent because modern Californian diversity does not actually believe in diversity. There, there actually isn't a diversity there. What really the modern left believes in is assimilation of the races into one monoculture. Modern Californian diversity wants to do the same thing with race and culture as it does with gender. With gender, the goal is to be genderless, for everyone just to be dissolved into androgyny to just abolish mankind altogether into this one glob of of nothing people. And so with race and culture, the the goal is actually to dissolve cultures into one monoculture that is tolerant but strips away whatever the hive mind doesn't tolerate about those cultures, particularly their moral standards that reflect the excellencies of God. That's got to go. That we don't tolerate. Essentially, the hive mind, that this monoculture wants to abolish God, to strip away the excellencies of God. And this has always been the goal of the evil one since the very beginning, because the devil can't get at God. The devil's not strong enough. God and the devil are not equal. God wins. God's always been winning. So if the devil can't get to God and punch God in the face, the devil does the next best thing and spray paints graffiti all over the image of God. God. That's what God, that's what the evil one wants to do, to erase the image of God, to erase the beauty of cultures, to erase the the glories that God has embedded in manhood and womanhood, or in this culture, or in this race. The devil wants to erase that, to spray graffiti all over it, to deface it, Thus, modern Californian diversity ironically creates a drab, joyless culture where we tolerate everything except the stuff we don't, and then it's the internment camps for you, buddy. We're all to be united to one group or the other. The only question is whether it leads to life and vibrancy or not. That's the question. And in the church, God does not dissolve his excellencies that exist in the cultures. He actually brings them to life. He raises them from the dead. He brings resurrection to people, to nations, to cultures. He makes them more themselves, more alive. And he does this. He does this for his own glory. Why? Because God's glory is so vast and so multifaceted that at the end of time, it'll take every tongue, tribe, and nation to properly gather around his throne and to properly sing his praises forever. At the end of all time, God will redeem what he did at Babel and take all of these differences and accrue them to his glory. This is where God is going at Pentecost, not to a joyless, drab communist, utopian future, but one where every culture, every nation is resurrected from the dead and made new. In order to have peace, the nations and peoples do not need more diversity training. We need resurrection from the dead. Let the dead bury their dead. The the promise of Pentecost is that there is a unity that does not strip us of life and vibrancy, but actually gives life and vibrancy. It does not squelch. It enlivens. It does not enslave. It does not exclude. It does not cancel. It gives vibrancy. It gives resurrection. So we must repent. We must repent of trying to find a unity that is apart from God. Christians need to believe the gospel. (laughs) Unity and joy, uh, they're very similar in that if, if you seek... Unity in the world, or you seek joy in the world as an end in and of itself, you will not find it. If you seek joy as an end in and of itself, as your very golden life, you will not find it. But if you seek Christ, you will find unity with 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 generations of people, a unity that is glorious, a unity that five minutes in you're like, brother, <laughs> where have you been all my life? You will find a unity and you will find a joy that when you meet with that brother and you resonate with each other like two instruments resonating on the same frequency, oh, you just feed off each other and your joy is just multiplied and multiplied. That's what the church is for for this multiplication of joy. And this joy is what attracts the nations and unites the nations with God and Christ at the center of it all. This is our job to proclaim this joy, to point at this joy, to to be a living parable as a church of this joy together, this shared joy that is meant to unite the nations that will unite the nations. (laughs) Forgive me for saying if, if I just said if there, will. God will unite the nations around his son. (laughs) The resurrection proves that. So, and, and as he does, the nations finally, as Isaiah prophesied, will come to dwell in justice and righteousness and peace together. Only God in Christ can solve the base problem that creates disunity in the world, that is the rebellion of the human heart. Only God in Christ can create a new people, a new race who are justified, and then out of that justification, walk in righteousness and then live at true peace with each other. Not a false peace, not a contrived peace, not an enforced peace. A lively, vibrant peace. Only God can do that, the God of life. And we, of all people, need to live believing that and repenting to that. Okay, so so what does this look like? This looks like a life of love, Life of love, okay? I want I want to define love. What, what is love? Love is a lawful behavior from the heart. Love is lawful behavior from the heart. Christians need to learn to love again. Okay So why why do I say this here? First off, Christians need to learn to to understand and to define, what they do from the Bible. From the Bible. That's how we know what is lawful. Letting the Bible define for us, inside here and out there, what is sin and what is not. So for instance, I'll define racism. Racism is a sin. Well, What is racism? Racism is pride or superiority or malice and evil intent against someone because of their color of their skin, their ethnicity. So you get this first a a highness and then an evil intent towards the other person based on race, color, ethnicity, nationality. That is racism, and that is wrong. Wrong. Period. Sin. Rebellion against a holy God who made all those ethnicities and nationalities. It is offense, first and foremost, to him. What is not sin is a color or a culture. You cannot sin just by being a certain culture. That is anti-biblical. Christians need to learn out of love to the church and to each other and to the wider culture to let the Bible determine for us what is lawful and what is not in love. We need to repent to love we need to let the Bible define for us what is sin, what is lawful. Secondly, it is behavior. Love is behavior. Behavior in the real world. Walking across your street and talking to your neighbor. <laughs> Walking down the street and asking your neighbor into your home, into your living room, for a meal, for a tea. It is behavior behavior. And then thirdly, it is behavior from the heart with affectionate love. Christians need to learn this again. We need to learn this again, and, and the, the this is the foundation. The, this love is the foundation upon which um, society can be rebuilt, and it is the only foundation. It is the only foundation in which our society can rise from the ruins of its, of its relativistic Fires that have been burning for so long. A love that comes from submitting to Christ as King. A love that comes from being made alive together in His resurrection life. A love that is lawful, defined from the Bible, that shows up in real behavior, in real life, and that comes from the heart to all the peoples. So, what would this look like for us in the future? Let me give a few practical ways. Number one, you can expect God. God has already been doing this behind the scenes, but I think we can expect more of this in the future for God to create connections um, of our church to other Bible-believing churches in this town um, that are of other ethnic makeups and other um, color makeups. Uh, God has been causing me to run into pastors and forge relationships with other pastors, um, Chinese, black, um, Japanese, and we'll see where God takes us. We'll see where God takes us. But I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be pretty cool. Um, secondly, I, I invite you, brothers and sisters, when something happens in the, in the news, when, uh, when, when the next, uh, God forbid, but when the next shooting happens and it involves people of a certain color, and you know that someone in our church is of that same color, a- ask them. Ask them how, how does that how do you feel? How are you doing with this, this these days love love is is lawful behavior. It is concrete behavior that's from the heart. Brother, I care for you. I want to know how are you doing with this? How, how did this land on you? I, I'm not sure that I know. that's why I'm asking. I, I bet my response is different than yours. Can we talk about it? Ask your brothers and sisters how are they doing especially when events come up? but at the same time always hold to scripture always hold the scripture together and then say Look, can we open the bible together and gain comfort and strength from what the bible says here if we do these things if we if we walk in this faith and this obedience to Christ holding to his word all of this will abound to Jesus's prayer from John 20 or excuse me John 17 being fulfilled God will create a more unified people on earth and he will draw in more of the nations and the peoples will be united. They will become one. One day God will fulfill Jesus' prayer. He will answer Jesus' prayer and he will do it. And some of the glory that he will get on that day will have accrued here in this body, here among us. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. So let us walk by faith in that coming day, the day when Pentecost will be fulfilled. All right, let me pray for that right now. Father, will you please do this? Will you make us a people that are walking by faith? Will you forgive our unbelief and will you help our unbelief? Make us a people that walk by faith, in the unity that you have already achieved by uniting us together in Christ? Will you make us a church that is vibrant in our enjoyment of this unity? And will you draw in others from the nations drawn and attracted by this unity that they so long for? but Give us grace to point out that it is not us, it has nothing to do with us, that we are just the happy recipients of your sovereign grace, that at the center of all this unity is a crucified Savior and a risen King, a lion and a lamb given for us. Show your face here, display your face, clothe yourself before the nations inside this church and every other Bible-believing church in this area. Father, will you please do this? For the glory of your name we pray. And the good of the nations. Amen. Amen. Go celebrating that and resting in that with your brothers and sisters. Go in the peace of union with your Lord. Amen.